Welcome to Nightmare Box Presents The Art of Wargaming. This is Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And we, I know we promised that this week we would be talking about Machiavelli. And we are going to make good on that promise. We're definitely talking about Machiavelli. That is the whole plan of this episode. But we're actually going to be starting the book a little bit in the future because uh, for unforeseen circumstances, we are going to be moving servers. So expect a one to three week delay in production, but do not worry. We will be back. We are stoked to be talking about Machiavelli. On timing Um, wise, this is actually kind of the best time it could have happened right before a new book started. As opposed to like in the middle that's very true. Chapter four will be here someday. And uh, we just wanted to extend a, a thank you to Nightmare Box for giving us the start and the opportunity here. Um, we really enjoy what we're doing, and we wish them well on what they're doing as well. So, But for today, we're going to be talking about Machiavelli and a little bit about Sun Tzu and the worlds that they lived in. Because these two books, are, they're both called Out of War, but they really couldn't be more different books. Like, I, I, I read over the first chapter in preparation for uh, getting her done. And even just in that first chapter, uh, you had stark differences, stark, stark uh, focuses that the, the, the two different authors went after. And I well, think that's largely because of audience. Did, and they were written about a thousand years apart from each other. Well, give yeah, or take. that's true. Yeah. A thousand years. Uh, yeah, somewhere in there. <laughs> a thousand to two thousand years apart. There's some time. But so Sun Tzu, the guy that we're transitioning from, uh, he was writing specifically for the king of his small kingdom. And at the, uh, during a time of, of extreme upheaval, and where these, these states were warring against one another quite a bit. And we should note when we say small kingdom there, we mean small kingdom for ancient China. Yes. That is still a huge, that is thousands of times bigger than the Republic, the Machiavelli. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These these states of ancient China were, were extremely large. And so when, when I'm saying a small state, I'm saying smaller than the country of China is today. But that, <laughs> again, China's massive. So, um, so yeah, th- that was the world that Sun Tzu was writing for, though. He was writing for his lord and for the generals and nobles of his lord's court that would be reading that relevant information. Now, after he passed, the words became more famous. They started getting passed around because they had good wisdom, and he became more famous. But also, during that time, uh, the Chinese had a bookbinding technique, but it wasn't a rapid printing technique, which was like what was around uh, during the time of Machiavelli. So the distribution of uh, Sun Tzu's works would have been really just for the upper class, really for people who could afford to buy these books. Um, if we were alive in that time, we would never have seen that. No, I would not have been reading that book. I would have been tilling my field, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'd be tilling my field. I'm going to war when my when hmm. my lord told me to. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas in Machiavelli's world, it's extremely different, and and Thumbs wanted to actually uh, d- uh, take the reins on this one, so I am going to turn them over to Sir Thumbs. Yeah, we're gonna cover a little bit about uh, just what the world was, because uh, I didn't, I I know a little bit, but Renaissance history is not my strongest point. So I looked some stuff up to understand for myself, and I realized how it useful for it be for everyone else. Uh, Machiavelli lived in the early. 16th, no, 16th century. This is exactly what we're talking about, where if it's like 1520, I'm like, 15th, 16th. Well, when was he exactly born? 1469. So that would have been the late 15th century? Late 15th, early 16th century. I swear, I should be teaching people. This is is a great intro. Um, Teaching is how you learn, man. That's how you learn. 
Renaissance Italy, when we say Italy, we do not mean Italy as we think of it today. There was no country of Italy. And not as a nation. Like, there, there was an idea of Italy. There were, like, you had things like the Lombardy League or, or other such things that the, that the, what we would consider Italian states would come together at times to fight mutual enemies. But the idea of an overall cohesive rule, that, that just wasn't the case. Florence, for instance, which is where Machiavelli was from, was a republic. Was its own independent city-state republic. Uh, and then just to make this more confusing, it was also part of the Holy Roman Empire. Which was like a collection of these republics. The Holy Roman Empire covered a lot of places, but people within the Holy Roman Empire would often go to war with each other. Imperium players, this should sound familiar to you. That, that's very much, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, also, the thing to remember of this era is the Catholic Church had the most power in this part of the world that you could possibly have. Yeah, supreme, supreme political power wielded by whoever sat in the throne of St. Peter. When, uh, when we think of a pope today, we think of a kind of harmless old man that gives moral lessons here and there. Yeah, but, occasionally messes up. Uh, yes, <laughs> but th- that's the goal, at least. Right, 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 right. Uh, while in that one, popes would lead wars. Uh, they would decide who got to be king and who didn't get to be king. Uh, so the position of Pope was a massively political position, and because it was Renaissance Italy, there was so much wonderful backstabbing and plotting and all of this. Well, and just pretend, and speaking of popes, like if you know your history of popes, you might recall that Pope Alexander VI, who was a major player during the life of Machiavelli, also known as the Borgia Pope, uh, he and his son Cesare did a number on uh, the surrounding areas. I, I believe it was Alexander VI who instituted the uh, the practice of indulgences. Oh, boy. Yeah. I didn't know that one. That's that's big. Yeah. Uh, remind the audience what indulgences are. Just so an this. indulgence, uh, This it was done particularly during a year of Jubilee when they were trying to raise a bunch of money. I... Uh, it's hard to corroborate exactly for what, but because the Borgias were involved, probably nothing good. Um... That's not fair. The Bor- the Borgias actually did a like in terms of like filigree and like artwork and that sort of thing. The Catholic Church got filled with art as a result. But we I diverse or I, I, I digress. Uh, the practice of indulgences was if you had a family member who was in purgatory, and let's face it, most of us, according to medieval or Renaissance era Catholicism, would have ended up in purgatory. Uh, you could pay a certain amount of money in order for a priest to speed along your family member or your friend's time in purgatory. The downsides Uh, of this are real obvious to anyone who hears it. Right. And and for for people who who may not be familiar with this whole Catholic structure, uh, you got heaven, which is where you go to if you're, you know, awesome and Catholic. You have purgatory, which is where you go if you're Catholic, but you're not so awesome. And then you have hell, which is the bad place where the not good people go according to that mythology. So purgatory is a place that you can get out of eventually, like once you have the sin burned off or worked off. It's the place in the middle. You have to kind of, it's the holding room of the afterlife. Yeah, the atrium, (laughs) if you will. Um, Kind of loosely based on the idea of the fields of asphodel from Greece, but I divulge. Um, So... This this is the world that they were living in, and and the indulgences was was a, a practice to enrich the church. Indulgences were a major reason for the uh, split of the church. Absolutely, it was on, it was too. one of the big reasons that Luther cited for the the Reformation that would occur later. Um, but that is 
not so much Machiavelli, just interesting. Uh, the other thing to remember about this era is that mercenaries were a super common product of or super common military force. Yeah. Oh yeah. People would hire uh, mercenaries. They would work for multiple states. They might switch sides really fast. It often led to um, really regular overthrow of set governments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like just within Machiavelli's life, uh, the Medici's take power and then the Medici's overthrown and the Republic of Florence is in charge. And then they are overthrown like 15 years later by the Medici's again. And then like, 15 years after that, the Medici's are overthrown again. Like, this was just... It was a cycle. Yeah, there was no stability to this world as we would think of it today. Yeah, it was, it was a highly tumultuous time where where very powerful people commanded a whole lot of chaos. Uh, and and, and these, these ambitions, these petty ambitions of these nobles uh, led to the ruination of states... Um, to, to the attempt to the formation of empires. Um, but we also have to remember that this wasn't just a time of, of chaos. Um, this was also the post-plague Renaissance Europe. And so you had this, this rebirth of culture. You had a rebirth of art and sciences. Um, and, and Florence was kind of the heart of the rebirth uh, of, of the Italian Renaissance. Um, Western civilization kind of looks at the Renaissance as like one of the high points of civilization history too. And like we, we are, and when we're talking about like in terms of art and writing and human expression, it was a, like a return to free thought in a lot of ways. But a, a huge thing about the Renaissance was a return of Greek and Roman themes. Uh, because those were lost um, to the West for a long time after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Um, after during, their empire collapsed, it was basically kind of held together by the church with like an iron fist for years. And right. Were and anything Roman or Greek was considered pagan. And so you had a lot of uh, books that were just destroyed. And you had a lot of artifacts that were destroyed. And uh, during this time, the empires of the Arabic world translated the works of Aristotle and Plato and uh, Cicero and all and all those fellows and kept them so that when Europe was finally thirsty for knowledge again, they had this flood of information coming in from the Arab-speaking world, uh, and you got the return of these political treasts that had been lost and this artwork that was absolutely inspiring. And so the church was the huge. I mean, like the Medici also founded or uh, funded a whole lot of art and a whole lot of restoration projects. But the church was the, the big, I don't know, like center point of, of the funding. Like Michelangelo received the majority of his funding from the church. Um, da Vinci received... Da Vinci was with the church all the time. Yeah. Like. Um, if, you, if you weren't getting funding from the church, you were actually probably a heretic, which wasn't good. Uh, um. I, I took art history <laughs> class, and... It was interesting because on one level, like, there was all of this great stuff coming out, but it actually got kind of boring because everyone was making art for the church. So you either right. had Jesus, Jesus's mom, or Jesus on the cross, possibly with his mom there. Oh, very religious uh, themes all over the place. Yeah. yeah. So really you need, uh, the, the power plays are going on here is we have an explosion of, of, uh, new thought based off old thought. Mm -hmm. We have a very powerful church. We have constantly shifting alliances and a very large, rich base that can afford these shifting alliances. Hence, the Renaissance. So, in this world, who was Machiavelli? Is the other part of what we're talking about to really kind of understand this uh, 
this book that we're launching into. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's good. I think it's good contextually to understand the world in which a book was written because it helps understand why the words or the situations were chosen. Yeah. Uh, Just to launch in, um, Machiavelli was born in Florence. Everything we're going to talk about Florence is going to be the biggest part of it. He loved his home. Uh, On May 3rd, 1469, uh, before I pronounce these names, neither one of us speaks Italian. Nope. At at all. I've studied French and Latin, which means that I can I can translate Italian, but uh, if you hear me speak it, I mean, I- anybody who is here for the Ligan... Mm, mm, I'm not even going to try Every time. <laughs> that L battle uh, that one episode. You guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, but, yeah, and then I failed a f- college French course like 10 years ago. So I'm the linguist here, and yeah. I don't know Italian, so please suffer with us as we as we suffer through this. Also, if you do know how to pronounce it, let us know so we don't make you cringe every time that a name might come up. But anyways, he was the, son, uh, the third child and first son of Bernardo di Niccolo Mach- Machiavelli and his wife Bartolomea di Stefano Nelli, mm. which I can't pronounce those names, but I love those long ridiculous, like, four-part Italian names. No, you did pretty okay there. <laughs> um, he, uh, his dad was an attorney. They came from, they descended from a noble line, but not, they were really kind of lower nobles, as I understand it. They, they weren't, you know, princes by any means. No, no I, they were, they were basically courtiers, just uh, people who were attached to the court who had a place there but weren't necessarily uh, royalty. Yeah. As I said, his dad was an attorney as opposed to, like, a viscount. Right. Right. Uh, In 1494, Florence became a republic, expelling the Medici family that uh, ruled Florence for about 60 years. Uh, It was around this time that Machiavelli... I'm going to mix up Medici and Machiavelli, so I'm going to try really hard (laughs) not to do that. Machiavelli enters into the public service, uh, and as far as we can tell, and it's not as far as we can tell, it's very obvious, Machiavelli lived for public service. He loved the politics. Oh yeah, everything about public life. Like you, you, like, you see his fingers just about everywhere, and he may not have been the most accomplished of generals, or the most accomplished of statesmen, but when no, you he talk was actually about, not very good at it for the most part. But if you talk about somebody who knew people and knew how to like bend the ear of powerful people, I, Machiavelli was one of those fellows. And on theory, he's without equal, kind of. Uh, we actually we actually considered him the father of modern politics. So that's which is so strange. We're going to discuss the controversy over the prince a little bit later. But like, I I just consider that so strange. Yeah, but that's a little later into there. Um, Let's see. I'm sorry. I lost all of my good notes, so I have my quickly assembled notes here. Uh, Between 1503 and 1506, Machiavelli was responsible for the militia of Florentine. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was really not a fan of mercenaries. No. Did not like mercenaries. He recognized, like I said earlier, that mercenaries would switch sides and then would know stuff about the cities they were suddenly attacking. He should not trust them. Do not. He did not like them at all. He talks about it quite a bit in the book that we're about to cover, The Art of War. Uh, so instead, he formed a citizen militia. 
Uh, one source I had described them as they were remarkable for their cowardice, <laughs> but at the same time, they were a major part in uh, defeating Pisa in 1509, right, right. Uh, which is after Machiavelli was no longer in charge of them, but it was still a result of his decisions. And again, we're going to go into some of that. He details uh, what that military structure is supposed to look like in The Art of War. So we're going to kind of go over what his idea of this militia was. Hint, there's a lot of the Roman in it. Yes. And again, to emphasize, the Renaissance was the rediscovery of the Greco-Roman culture and art and writing. And so just about every other word out of his mouth is either my Greeks or my Romans or, <laughs> or whatever the case may be. He's got a real love of them. But I can't really blame him because I have a real love of history too. So like, I, I'm, I'm nerding out over Machiavelli, nerding out over the Romans, really, is what's happening. Well, and with, uh, with him being in Italy, it was literally his ancestors and a lot closer to him sure. than me being like, oh, those Romans were pretty impressive. I come from nowhere near that part of the world. My wife is Italian. Does that count? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been a Gaul way back when, and that yeah. that would have been the exact opposite. Either a Gaul or a Goth. Um, cause oh, like, that's so much better for the Romans. Yeah, no. Uh, anyways, sorry guys. Uh, I'm a little distracted today. Uh, in 1512, the Medicis took over Florence again, because as we said, back and forth and back and forth. Uh, Machiavelli lost his position. He had been declared the... Where are you? Oh, this is the one... I know we will not pronounce this correctly. Uh, I'm pretty sure I can pronounce it correctly, and I'm pretty sure I've got the correct translation as well. He was the Deci de Libertà e Pace. Um, which, if, if by Italian, by uh, by um, if Latin serves, that would mean basically the head of the Department of Liberty or Freedom and Peace. We Google translated this just before to check, and it said the Ten of Liberty and Peace. So, the Liberty and Peace we, we, we got. have the ballpark. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere in there. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure Google translates wrong on the Ten part. It could um, be also be like a, a, a cultural reference that mm-hmm. we, we just don't we didn't uh, catch. But anyways. 1512, uh, Machiavelli, not Medici, (laughs) Machiavelli loses this position thanks to the Medicis. He will never serve in public service again. Right. And he will always want to. He will never get over this. And, and part of this is because even though he's a good politician, he also has a scathing tongue. He enjoys writing quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the times in his writings, he includes, uh, at least caricatures of political opponents, and himself. Um, and himself. Uh, that was and, the style of the time. It was. It was. But uh, be, because he was relatively, quote-unquote, low-ranked, um, making fun of the king of mm, France or uh, Spain. Rude. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they, they have more heft, as it were. Uh, in 1513, he is accused of aiding a rebellion against the Medicis, trying to overthrow the Medicis. It's never actually proven whether he is or not. They torture him for three weeks to get him to confess, and he never does. And eventually the Pope uh, steps in for him and exiles him. Right. Uh, I believe the Pope is... The Pope is a Borgia at this point, not a Medici. I believe so, yes. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Again, Italian politics, super complicated. A lot of back and forth. (laughs) Um... During this time, he's exiled uh, to a place just outside of Florence... And he uh, does most of his writing of this era, during this era. Uh, in his life, 
all the stuff that we know about him wasn't even published. Right. He was writing fiction. He was writing plays. He was incredibly popular during this time. Uh, but most of us have never even heard of most of those works. No, I certainly haven't. I haven't. Um, I mean, I've heard of them, but I haven't read them. He, during this time, does write two important works, the most famous being The Prince, uh, which is what most people know on him, Mm -hmm. uh, which was basically How to Be a Tyrant. We'll talk about this in a minute. And at the same time, he wrote The Discourses on Livy, which is said to have paved the way for modern republicanism. That that one's a really good book. We should also say, again, here, when we say republicanism, we do not mean it as the way that it would fit into American, like, the Republican Party. We mean running a republic. Right. Republic is in, like, Plato's republic, philosopher kings, uh, representatives of the people, like... uh, that that kind of republic, it's not it's not like a modern political connotation. Yeah. No, um, I do actually have a, a quote from a letter he wrote to Franca- Francesco Vittori, because I think it really kind of sums up his state of mind really well during this time. It's, it's it is so Italian Renaissance <laughs> rich guy. Uh, when evening comes, I go back home and go to my study. On the threshold, I take off my work clothes covered in mud and filth. Uh, I've heard another translation that had that as peasant clothes. <laughs> my peasant uh, clothes. I put on the clothes of an ambassador, would, or I put on the clothes an ambassador would wear. Decently dressed, I entered into the ancient courts of rulers who have long since died. There I am warmly welcomed, and I feed on the only food I find nourishing and was born to savor. I am not ashamed to talk to them and ask them to explain their actions, and they, out of kindness, answer me. Four hours go by without my feeling any anxiety. I forget every worry. I am no longer afraid of poverty or frightened of death. I live entirely through them. Whew. Yeah, it is peak (laughs) rich, full of themselves Italian renaissance man. I love it. I feel like these are the guys who educated me on how to speak because I like I read a lot of Machiavelli in high school. This is a lot how you write it in high wrote in high school. Write it. <laughs> but I mean, The Prince is a, a really influential work, and it's it's one of those it's one of those things that people take a certain way, but there's actually a, a great deal of controversy about it. Well, um, you can't it, wh- talk about Machiavelli without talking about The Prince, which is his most again it's his most popular work. But it wasn't actually published until five years after his death. And there is a lot of controversy on whether or not it was meant seriously because there's like all, 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 everybody is like Machiavellianism. Oh, that was really Machiavelli of that person. And it's supposed to uh, kind of reference the sinister nature. The kind of corrupt, conniving politician. But when you, when you look at the way that he, what he did in the discussions of Livy, which is on his, like the whole idea of Republic and the, the very seriousness at which he takes to it. And, a lo- and there's a lot of compassion even within it. Like, it's it's a very sensible book. Um, well, in a lot of his writing, outside of The Prince, he's very, very pro-Republic. Yes, yes. But The Prince is, like, very vicious and actually kind of details ways that you would honestly turn your populace against you. And so, to me, I, I'm on the side of the controversy that says that The Prince was actually a work of satire, that he was making fun of the Medici in a way that seemed like it was advice for the Medici, and it was one of those things that they didn't necessarily think of it as satire. They're like, oh, this book is great. This is great advice. And he became really popular uh, over a a caricature of his ideas. Um, It's interesting. I found during my reading up on this three different major schools of thought. That's the first one Mm -hmm. of this was him ripping into the Medici's 
and it's unsure because one of the Medici's was actually his patron. So they gave him money to make stuff, right? but he also really didn't like them, and they did not trust him enough to do important things for them, to, to work for them beyond, like, writing and stuff. And I think part of that was just to keep him out of the way. Right. I mean, he um, was also a meddler. Yeah. Know. The other theory was that some of these were traps. That Because there's a few pieces of advice that he gives in The Prince that are really terrible pieces of advice. Mm-hmm. Um one of the most notable ones being, you should live in the same town. You should live in the town of the people you're ruling. And the Medicis historically did not do that. They lived outside of town in well-protected villas, basically. Or like a compound, specifically yeah. for them. Uh, where it was really hard that if you know a riot did start, it could get to them. But he, Machiavelli's like, no, you should, uh, you should move on into the city there. I think it'll go really well for you. <laughs> so one another theory is it's a trap. And then a third theory is that it doesn't really fit in with his continuity of thought because it's not so much about like a continuity of how he thinks the world should be run and just, if you're going to be a tyrant, here's this, how to do it. This is how it, what it looks like. Uh, and also that he just was so desperate to serve again that he was, you know, give good enough advice that they'd be like, oh man, this guy's really... This guy knows his stuff. And uh, if they were committed to doing it as a kingdom as opposed to a republic, there's... Whatever. Yeah. Uh, it didn't did not work. Uh, he wrote it for one of the Medicis. There's no proof that they ever read it, let alone received a copy. Um, and then it wasn't actually published until five years after his death. Right. So it had no effect on any of the stuff that he was aiming to do. But it... Stuck. It I mean, it's what he's known for. So I, again, the term Machiavellianism is universally recognized in the English language as as being devious and uh, cruel-handed. Well, and your legacy was such a big deal in the Renaissance that oh, sure. even if even if it wasn't the legacy he was super going for, if we're like, hey, in four hundred years we're still talking about you, he'd be like, of course we are. I'm Machiavelli. Who do you think I am? That's what you would do. So yeah, there, again, this this controversy was is really interesting to me, and of course we can't go back and ask Machiavelli, "Hey, dude, what was your motivation for writing this?" I don't know Middle Italian, so it would be a really difficult conversation. Very in the first short place. one. Um, I probably get stabbed for wearing <laughs> for wearing strange clothes. Um, but yeah, so his his Art of War though. That's the book that we're going to be focusing on. Uh, that one was actually published during his life, correct? Yes, that one was written... I have this right here. Uh, it was written between 1519 and 1520. And if you remember, he died in 1527. Okay. Uh, it was published in 1521, the following year. Sure. Uh, around this time, he had become very popular right. with just the public. So the Medici were hiring him to do more things. He was rehired. He was hired to write a history of Florence. Mm-hmm. Uh, when there was some public concessions, he was hired to help rewrite a new constitution. Basically, right. I don't think they called it that, but it was uh, basically yeah. They're, they're terms of state. Uh, those never actually ended up being used because the Medici were like, "Sure, we'll meet you halfway. You can have this, and then we're just going to quietly not talk about it and not do it." <laughs> um, uh, it was written, yeah, between 1519, 1520. 
I am losing track of what I am saying here. Uh, but yeah, so this was one that was published during his lifetime and was popular. So when we're talking oh. again about the differences between the audiences of Sun Tzu and Medici, or uh, uh, Machiavelli, see I did it too, mm-hmm. um, Machiavelli's audience was far larger because again, you had uh, a lot better book binding, or a, a mass production book spot, book binding techniques that were Part of the reason Renaissance happened was just the printing press was right. invented and suddenly people didn't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel themselves, but mm-hmm. look what other people were saying too. Here's the book right here. You could circulate them much further, they could be translated and all that, like the typeset, it was a huge deal. And so not only was Machiavelli writing for whoever was in charge, whether it be uh, the Republican leader or the prince of the of the kingdom, uh, but he was also writing for any minor nobles. He was also writing for the mercantile class who were absolutely literate at this time. Um, and, and, and any of your, your middle class to upper class people would have had access to his works. Yeah. Uh, on a much more just smaller scale... What was Renaissance Italy like on the battlefield? What what weapons are we using here? What stuff? I'm asking you this question while you're you know busy. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Just taking a hit of my vape. Uh, not for the kids. Um, so uh, <clears throat> Renaissance Italy uh, again. It, it depended. Some of them ran mercenary companies that were more or less loyal, depending on how much you paid them and how much your opponents paid them. Some people ran militias. Uh, but for the most part, not a whole lot could get done without allies. You had such a concentration of individual states that were in an area that, that were tiny. That were they were fairly tiny by comparison. Uh, that if you wanted to maneuver on somebody, you had to have some sort of sort of support, either the support of a larger state like Spain or France, or uh, the support of a, a league of some sort that was moving, or or even the papacy was a good form of support. So the the battlefield at this time was extremely political. And I honestly think that that's why this book is going to be good for something like Belegarth, because our battlefields are always extremely political. Well, and as opposed to two big armies hitting each other, we're so often small city group states. of 10, group of five, group of 12. And that's also how we're organized. Like as a, as an overall organization, we have, like we mentioned in previous episode, we have a president, a vice president, a treasurer, uh, various people who are in charge of things, but each realm runs themselves. We're basically a league of, of, of these realms. Oh, I've done that before and, on the field before. The yeah. Montana-Idaho alliance when we're too far away, The whatever it is. That was our, our, our Lombardi League or our, our Holy Roman, or do you remember when they were doing the, uh, there was like the Empire? Excuse me. Yeah, was that was a, way back in like Chaos fifteen, and that 14? went that went from Idaho over into Oregon and a little bit into Montana, and yeah, and so it, it, again, this these concepts are not as foreign as we think they are to what we do in Belagarth. Uh, also, the technological level is pretty similar. Right. Uh, we are talking the earliest days of gunpowder here, long before the musket was even created. Or uh, uh, gunpowder arqui- in Europe. You sorry. had the arquebus. Um, That's and, what it's called. I and, can never remember. And a lot of and they were they were clumsy. Um, they were devastating if you could actually hit the thing that you were aiming at because they were those, there was no rifling at this time. They were those big things. You can find pictures of them where they're holding them on their shoulder, almost like bazooka style. And there's a stick. It's like there's, there's a stand that they've got <laughs> out in front of them. You're too. just hoping for the best. Uh, Will was telling me there's a 
uh, 40k model that uses like a sci-fi version of the Arceus. Yep, yep. The uh, in the Admech uh, we have a Transronic Arcubus, which is one of the best sniper rifles in the game, to be frank, uh, because uh, the Admech, the Admech can actually aim them. They use rifling. Um, so so again, you're not talking about a heavy, um, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, distribution of of firearms. Certainly, um, single shot. Uh, pistols and that sort of thing might have been common here and there, but for the most part, you were still looking at blades. Uh, uh, there was pike a lot... men were generally the biggest part of the field. Pike was the was one of the biggest uh, things of the time, and in particular the halberd, because in the halberd you had an axe for swinging, you had the point for going in. It could be used very much like the old phalanx tactics, um, and so again, and it was effective against a horse, which yep. was a big because. Before, there was this huge mounted cavalry. I mean, there's still huge mounted cavalry through right. this. But the pikeman was the best way to... Counter it. Counter it, and still not be useless against other infantrymen. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the field that we're looking at here, while it would have contained far more metal armor than we typically see in Bell, Dag, or Ampguard, um, was, was a lot... It was very similar to what we're talking about in terms of armament. Mm-hmm. Well, and Machiavelli did not like mounted soldiers much anyways. Well, no. Partly because no. he couldn't get as many of them. Uh, because they were drawn from nobility. But that's that's something we will talk about yeah. as we get into the book. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to no, say No, I mean, that's really the basics. If you get that, you get enough of where Machiavelli's world is that you can start to dive in. So like we said, it's going to be uh, probably one to three weeks before you hear from us again. Do not worry. Uh, we we're will, definitely still here. We will absolutely still be producing, um, but we're just transferring servers. And, oh, sorry, my thing is low on battery and we're about to lose you. And I don't. Oh, we would be really sad if we lost all of this because we forgot to plug in the computer. There we go. There we go. Computer's plugged in. Before we go, we have the first of our event reports. Uh... A fighter by the name of Draken got in touch with me and uh, wanted me to talk about Throndor Winter Waps. It happened the 4th of January. <laughs> what, you like that? Winter Waps. That's a I, great... I love it. That's a great foam fighting name. Uh, it's catchy. Yeah. It's very catchy. Uh, but it happened this last... Uh, on, on the 4th of January. Uh, so just, just right before this recording took place. Uh, they were expecting uh, a turnout in the 30s. They got 30... Or 52. They got oh, 52 for nice. this event. Um, War of the Gate has never topped 50 people, as far as I'm aware. Right. And this is, a, I think this was the first time they had run this event. Wow. So, yeah, this, uh, that's, a, that's a great turnout, guys. Uh, 11 realms ended up uh, pretty, uh, showing up for it. Of course, you guys in Illinois live so close together that, uh, I mean, we're jealous. We're jealous here in Montana of the, uh, the travel distance, or lack thereof, that you all have. Yeah, 11 realms is our, like... Big events that we go to. Yeah, Lord, you're reaching out all the way to the West Coast <laughs> for <laughs> to get to Eleven Realms. Um, so the notable units that were in attendance were the Emir, Cerebus, and the Jester's Court. Um, and the Emir seemed to have done extremely well. They were the tourney winners. There was a, a 3v3 team tournament that took place, and it looks like the Emir did quite well. So congratulations, guys. You can't see this, but this is my surprised face. The well, yeah, they're, did very well. they're, they're very good. They're very good fighters. Um, we also have uh, a couple of awards that were announced. Uh, best garb at this particular event was Dame Vulpin of the Emir. Not a surprise. I've seen Dame Vulpin, and her kit is always on Gorgeous point. work. 
the best spirit was Sir Peanut of Hydra. Also not surprising. That's a fellow with a great work ethic and just a great personality. Spirit and this just being like best attitude, basically. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm, yeah, yeah that's just, what I'm, just making sure. I'm imagining. Um, and then best fighter would be Squire Inc. of Dunharo. <laughs> Ink like I N K I N C I N C I yeah so that's this is kind of nice because it's so far from where I I mean I know you know some of these people and I know of a few of them but right. like getting to hear about a realm an area of Belagarth that I don't hear about nearly as much oh yeah and us here on the west coast like we wouldn't have necessarily known this was happening so and, and this is one of the things we really want to do with this show guys so if you've got events coming up if you've got events that have recently happened and you want us to talk about them for a little bit on the show oh, we'll we would absolutely love to soon. yeah yeah I'm hoping that I get some some uh, eyes on the ground for Battle for the Ring because that one would be great. I will unleash my <clears throat> squires. <laughs> Please do. Um, so, but before we end on this subject, I do want to give a shout out because Draken made sure that, that I understood the extreme hard work and dedication of the event coordinators for this one. Uh, Starling, Dromir, and Pigeon. Um, now what's exceptional, really exceptional about these three individuals is that not only did they put on this event for their first time, uh, not only did it go swimmingly and everybody have a great time at it, but they're only a year into the sport. I think they're like under a year in the sport. Wow. That is amazing to see our new people stepping up and, and doing something like this. So my first year in the sport, I barely had bell legal pants. My first year in the sport, I'd spent back talking authority figures. So like these guys are way, of course I joined when I was 15. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) me too. That kind of sums up both of us, but Starling, Dromir and pigeon, uh, congrats to you guys. Good job, Uh, buddies. Yeah, really, really uh, a pat on the back to y'all because that's, that's exceptional work. I I can't wait to see what you do with the rest of your careers. Um, and what happens next year at Throndor's winter waps. I, I just can't get over how much I love that. name. That's a, that's a catchy name. I like it. Okay, so we are going to finish up here, guys. But once again, I just wanted to extend a a, a thank you, um, a, a debt of gratitude to Nightmare Box Productions for helping us get this started, for giving us the equipment, uh, for giving us a space uh, to, to launch this podcast. We're indebted to you guys. Thank you so much, and we wish you well in your future endeavors. Um, and we are looking forward to moving over toward, I'm going to figure out how to pronounce it. Earworm. Earworm. That's the It's one. like worm with a bad accent. Worm. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Um, but yeah, this has been Malark. I'm Thumbs. Signing off.